Ladles and jelly spoons, welcome to the Alchemics show where we talk a little bit more about the business side of alchemy. I'm Tommy Alchemy on all social media. They call me Tommy Alchemy because I am indeed an alchemist. I can turn base metals into gold and create elixirs for immortality. Uh, that, of course, is a lie, but we believe that the modern alchemist is the chef, the distiller, the bartender, the people that believe in creating something out of nothing. And the reason that we're doing this show is because we're actually leaving the studio that we're in. And yes, for those of you asking, we are still going to continue to do uh, projects, big projects. In fact, the projects are getting much bigger. Um, this is a group of real filmmakers and social media strategists at Alchemics. And so we are looking to do actually bigger documentaries and go around the world and things of that nature. I want to try it all. I want to taste it all. Uh, the drink of the day is a Añejo Tequila Manhattan. Fantastic. And you may say, well, that's not a Manhattan at all. But we're going to get into later why it actually is. Um, topics of the day. What is uh, Añejo te Tequila exactly? We, uh, we are also about to film right after this episode the Añejo tequila cocktails video so in the spirit of age tequila we're going to get into that today go into a little more depth uh, a couple of Nyeho tequilas that are priced well that i recommend the argument that there's no reason to age tequila this is just lore and conversation i've had with bartenders as well as a little you know a little bit of my personal opinion and then two articles cocktail culture has a nostalgia problem Punch article and extra anejo behind tequila's big luxury play. That is also a punch article. Uh, I do really quickly need to correct the record. I made a mistake, which I tend to do. In the second episode, I was telling a story about a rep who was a little bit uh, of an asshole. And I said. Espolon tequila when I meant El Jimador tequila. So just really quickly, I'll tell the story briefly again, just to set the record straight. I don't want anybody to get upset and I feel bad about it. Uh, not, I don't care what the rep thinks. Reps are reps, but um, so basically we were consulting one day and then the rep came in as they do. And this is the second episode of the Alchemics show called the tyranny of liquor brand reps. And we had a cocktail on the menu that we worked very hard on that was made with Espelon. And so he had the cocktail. I asked him how it was. And he said, ha, 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 man, it's all right. But uh, I think it'd be better if it was made with El Jimador. So I said Espelon again for the second time. And I really meant El Jimador. And I, I also meant to say El Jimador when I said I never drank El Jimador again. Espelon, I tend to actually... So I do recommend you go back and listen to that episode. And uh, so I just needed to make sure that I pointed that out. So first up, we'll dive right in after uh, get a little bit more of <sighs> some of that delicious tequila. This Manhattan is made with Nejo tequila, Pedro Jimenez sherry, which you could call your substitute for 
sweet vermouth, and two full-eyed droppers of grapefruit bitters from Grape uh, Cocktail Punk. Quite good. Quite good. So cocktail culture has a nostalgia problem. This is a punch article. And this is a little bit interesting. I wanted to just get into it because the the, the writer is talking about um, how we sort of fetishize a sort of a couple specific periods in history. And some of this I agree with, some of this I don't. I'm curious about your thoughts, so make sure you comment below. Um, and as always, I don't want to take anything out of context, so I encourage you to read the full article. So. First paragraph is a slicked and suspended male bartender is serving you a pristine Manhattan in an etched glass coupe from behind a dark bar in a hidden location you had to hear about through a friend of a friend. It's 1934. No, wait, 2001. Or is it 2021? I don't know what the purpose of him saying specifically male bartender is. I don't see the, the reason to gender anything here, but I don't, you know, really want to have that conversation. It just seems like it's kind of shoehorned in. Shoehorned in. Because when I think about early 1900s bartenders, actually, I think about Ada Coleman and, uh, you know, not just, as we'll, you will get into later in the article, the Jerry Thomas. Ada Coleman was... Bartender at the the Savoy, Savoy. My English partner always gets mad at me for saying that like a, an American. Savoy. It's not Savoy. Savoy. In the early 1900s, who invented the hanky-panky cocktail, amongst many others. But anyway, just seems weird. I understand what this writer is trying to say is that, you know, back in the days, there's a lot more male bartending traditions. But that's neither here. Um, and obviously in that first paragraph, it is 1934. No, wait, 2001. Or is it 2021? They're trying to say that there's been no, um, innovation since 1934 in essence. And I would agree that there has been periods of stagnation. Um, and as far as like them being slicked and suspended, as he would say, you, you kind of would have to be there. I mean, I got into the last episode about how I thought bartenders wearing suits is stupid and how I'm against a lot of the pretentiousness. So I agree with that. I just, you don't know what every bartender was wearing in 1934. So, and as always, cocktail history is hazy because everyone was drunk. Anyway, quote, despite cycling through, through fresh approaches to cocktail aesthetics, the science lab precision of, quote, Molecular mixology, the craft dive, the revamped 70s rec room, the tiki revival, the bar world has an intractable fixation on the trappings of the so-called golden age of cocktails, those precious few decades from the mid-1800s until Prohibition. We have an exceptionally long memory. It seems for a very short period in drinking history, the record is scratched, people. The record is scratched, people. And the tune is on ceaseless loop. So the reality is, is that this, the, 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 what people consider the golden age is actually after prohibition ended, in all honesty. Now, we could say that the birth of the cocktail maybe happened 
pre-prohibition. But as always, everybody was drunk, and a lot of this was even before the ice trade. So cocktails wouldn't have been what they were back then anyway. And, you know, I tend to think the classics are good because they're, they're, they're simple. I think that's important. Because if it's not simple, then it's, just sim- it's not going to hold up because not every bar is going to be able to have the ability to execute on it. We'll, get, we'll, we'll understand why that's, that's a little bit um, of a controversy later in the article. But there is, of course, a, a little bit of an appeal to tradition. And this whole article is basically about how we fetishize an old world type of cocktail, you may say. And so I started thinking about it. And it's like, well, a lot of them actually are really simple. And I think that's important because... They have to be executable across the board, <clears throat> but they're also still good. A lot of them still really hold up. And the reason why is because cocktails obviously wouldn't have been what they were back before the ice trade or, or much better ingredients that we're, we're lucky enough to have now. But, you know, they've still held up. And I think maybe that's a beautiful thing. But he goes on to say, it's often easy to let traditions become an anchor. This is somebody else's quote. Excuse me. It's often easy to let traditions become an anchor, says Monica Berg, co-owner of Tayer Plus Elementary, the London bar where the classics and cutting edge operate in tandem. You start to be weighted down by it and can't break away. Well, you know, look, that seems like a convenient thing for an English person to say when uh, America invented the cocktail. I don't think this is a particularly controversial statement. In fact, I would actually say that the only thing that America even offered to the culinary world is, in fact, the cocktail. So it's like, let us have something, will ya? Now, I understand what they're saying. It's like maybe it shouldn't have, you know, we shouldn't be bogged down by tradition. And I actually agree with that. And it goes on to say, the United States prides itself on progress. Too often, though, we are more reactionary than revolutionary. When we obsess over a single area of adolescent history, we likewise disregard the people and perceptions that were outsiders to the moment. As we head into a fresh decade of drinking, I wonder if we remain blinded by our dusky Manhattan-tinted glasses stuck in a turn of the 20th century groundhog day incapable of waking up to a new morning and the first thing that remains obvious with this article is that this guy has a vendetta against manhattan i don't know if you fell into a manhattan as a kid and almost drowned or something but that's the second time it came up and uh it just seems like you know I understand the premise of the article. You could pick on maybe another classic. And I'm a person that doesn't always love Manhattans because I don't love vermouth. It seems to affect me in a weird way. Um, Not that I have anything against it. I like it. I drink it sometimes. I taste it, but I I don't drink it a lot. So, um, you know, it it brings me to the cocktail of the day, the Añejo Manhattan. So I, I think... This will actually tie in well. So I'm using El Padrino Añejo, which is priced at about $40 a bottle where I am 
And uh, I think that's probably one of the better priced Anejo tequilas you're going to get on the market. Pedro Jimenez, as I said, and grapefruit bitters. And I forgot to mention bitters and a, a brandy cherry for garnish. So just um, kind of going along um, with the, the article, the, the idea that we're stuck, I think, is simply not true. I think there has been a lack of an innovation for a long time, mostly because we have sort of maxed out the ingredients and flavors that are even possible to, to, to implement into cocktails at a certain point. Um, so, yeah, you might say, okay, so Manhattan was made traditionally with rye, whiskey, vermouth, bitters. Okay, well... Um, You know, Cocktail Codex, a fantastic cocktail book that I have right here, basically makes the argument that there is only six cocktails. Not basically. They literally say this. Uh, hence the name of the book. So, and I want to point that out because they say... Um, let's see here. There are only six cocktails. Root recipes, that is. The old-fashioned martini, daiquiri, sidecar, whiskey, highball, and flip. And what they're trying to say is that all these classics, these are sort of the building blocks in which other cocktails were built off of. So, in other words, um, like you could consider the Sazerac is certainly an old-fashioned variation. Uh, the bee's knees is a variation of the daiquiri. Even an Aperol spritz could be considered a whiskey highball because of the formula. And there's, there's tweaks in this formula, but in essence, there hasn't been that many cocktails in terms of actual formulas. And this is important because formulas are, are in essence what make a cocktail a cocktail because every cocktail needs certain components. The only uh, argument I, I would actually, you know, just to be fair, to argue, the, the only counter argument I have to Cocktail Codex is there is some advanced stuff when you get into like the aviary level, which is truly fantastic, phenomenal, a sight to behold, amazing. But as I've covered before, in order to make that model work, the cocktails need to be $25, $27, $30. You know, if your cocktail comes in a balloon, you know, something along the side, uh, along the lines of like what a three Michelin star restaurant would give you, except in cocktail form. So it's very hard for the average Joe to just start doing stuff like that. So th what they're saying is, in, ex in essence, there's only six cocktails, or quite literally, they say that. And then all those those are classic cocktails in which serve as the building blocks to which all other cocktails are built off of. So I just kind of. You know, so so this is uh, basically not even considered a Manhattan. This would be considered a martini if you take that premise at its base. So he goes on to say the singularity of the cocktail's golden age, as has long been established, was a boon and a blessing. Cultural Collisions in the form of trade routes uh, converged and immigrant cultures in the United States coupled with industrial, industrialization meant that something from France could be mixed with something from 
Peru to create a great, unique drink. Says Thad Vogler, spirits writer and owner of Bar Agricole in San Francisco. The spirit improvisation is arguably American. That freewheeling confidence spawned the cocktail frameworks born during the so-called golden age. The drink templates still employed today. Sours, daisies, the old-fashioned, and their accompanying accompanying gentlemanly opportunances, swirly mustaches, and bowler hats. Again, another unnecessarily thing that I think was shoehorned into the end of that sentence in the article in general is what they were wearing back in the day when uh, classic cocktails were invented, uh, many, and I really don't care. Uh, It just doesn't make any sense. I don't understand why that has to be inserted in there. And also, classic cocktails come from a wide, fairly wide range of history. I don't know that I agree that it's all from one so-called golden age. Um, it seems like they're, 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 the writer is just kind of shoehorning in whatever they see fit, I guess. And they also didn't spell mustaches right. So, um, so I would agree with... Um, owner of Bar Agricole, Thad Vogler, because if you think about the fact that America was a melting pot and as I, and well, and still is, but as um, the first cocktail revolution, which what the writer gets wrong is that the the first cocktail revolution really actually happened post-prohibition and all the uh, bartenders came back from Europe and brought a bunch of interesting and new and unique spirits and ingredients. Jerry Thomas obviously is significant, but that was way before we had these these many of what we consider classics today. So, um, you know, I think that before that, you wouldn't have had the same amount before, you know, people came from Europe and even Americans just came back from Europe to mix drinks again. You wouldn't have had the same uh, information, technology, the actual ice trade, ingredients from around the world, and really, at the end of the day, creativity. Because unfortunately, prohibition was was not great for cocktails, but it gave birth to creativity, unfortunately. Uh, I mean, that's one of the positives about oppression is that it gives birth to a lot of creativity. So he says, nostalgia, according... So one of the definitions in the Oxford English Dictionary involves the longing for some part of the past. It is understandable after a whirling, after the whirling blenders and snorting nostrils of the cocktails 1970s and 80s dark ages, that a fresh set of bartenders in the 1990s wanted to return to a purer, simpler model. Time before Harvey Wong, Wall bangers and Long Island iced teas, when drinks were drier, and the world they said. More civilized. More civilized. Well, it actually was more civilized, <laughs> uh, frankly, than in the 70s, 80s, 90s, where it was just sex, drugs, rock and roll, and pink, and whatever the brightest colored cocktails you could drink were, uh, because it was all artificial ingredients and a bunch of other horse shit. But then he says, that nostalgia was for the thin man. 
And the, quote, let's have a real drink and make pleasant conversation, says the paterfamilias, paterfamilias of the cocktail rebirth, David Wondrich, which was legit and in its way conservative and not progressive in a cultural way. I don't understand what he even means by the thin man here, but I'm just going to leave that be because I don't think I'm supposed to understand. But lucky for you, the let's have a real drink and make pleasant conversation, that's out. That's already dead. If that's something you have a problem with, I mean, that's over. Especially, you know, you try to have a cocktail, everybody's on their phone. So, you know, I think that, and I don't understand if you certainly, you can tell that in this context, he's trying to make it seem like, let's have a real drink and make pleasant conversation. That's a quote. Uh, is uh, a bad thing. I don't see how that can even be considered negative in any way. And then to call David Wondrich a paterfamilias, which I'm not going to lie, I may be pretty much completely incompetent, but I also I know that this is an example of bad writing because they say, Always use always. Use the simplest version of a word that you possibly can. Paterfamilias, I had to look up, and it meant it was like a Roman Italian origination. It means like the oldest living male in a family. And this to me, and again, bad writing, so I don't wanna I don't wanna take this out of context, but the way that I can interpret this, because it's not clear at all, is that he's actually he's actually shitting on David Wondrich, and I don't know why. Maybe it's because journalism's dead, and David Wondrich is one of the only few journalists in any industry that actually like sits down and does research these days. Um, but, uh, you know, I do think there's a contradiction in this article, but he's, because he's trying to say that when the, in the 90s, and what he really means is the early 2000s, because the 90s, there wasn't that much cocktail innovation at all. <clears throat> He's trying to say that we were regressing back to the classics. We were conserving the old values of classic cocktails. But uh, I personally would argue that this is progressive because we were progressing past the era where everyone was doing drugs and in the discos and not drinking uh, drinks and having good conversation as he literally points out in this article. And more importantly, not everything was just dyed. Random colors. Thank God that the, 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 the 70s, 80s, 90s died. Even though he seems to think that the 90s gave birth to another cocktail revolution. It may have barely started. And then the contradiction, I think, is that there actually was innovation in the second cocktail revolution. I mean, you have modern classics everywhere. I mean, you have the paper plane, you have the penicillin. Um, and he goes on to actually call out some of the institutions that, inv that invented these very modern, what we consider modern classics. And there is a distinction that he doesn't actually make. But uh, 
He says this backwards staring preoccupation began during the late 90s and the early 00s. With the Dale DeGroffs and the Sasha Petrovskys remounting the drinking styles and style of the late 1800s and early 1900s. And this is the point in the article where I realized this person doesn't know actually, he doesn't actually know anything about the cocktail revolutions, about cocktail innovation, and probably hasn't ever uh, made a cocktail. Especially when it comes to the cocktail history bit, because the idea that you would put Dale DeGroff and Sasha Petrovsky in the same sentence is asinine. I understand what he's trying to say, but it's definitely proof that you don't know what you're talking about because Dale DeGroff is a fraud who lied about inventing one classic that picked up a uh, uh, press from Sex in the City and is really invented by Toby Caccini. And I do want to set that record straight. And on the other side, Sasha Petrosky was a guy that literally dedicated his entire life to the cocktail bar and the cocktail bar model and trying to make it work as a business. So I don't think that these two names should even be in, said in the same sentence. He says, now in 2021, there is an analogous, inexpungible reverence towards the rainbow rooms and milk and honeys of a mere 20, 30 years ago. A sort of recreation of the recreation. This drinking mode may not be the singular aesthetic any longer, but it remains a per pervasive one. Without Sasha Petrosky, we wouldn't even be here today. You know, this is an example of somebody shitting on the stand, uh, shitting on the shoulders of giants in which they stand on. Now, and it's clear that he doesn't know anything about Dale DeGroff and Sasha Petrosky because, again, shouldn't be in the same sentence, not even in the same universe. Sasha Petrosky didn't even really care about publicity. Nobody was, he wasn't out publishing books and trying to generate press. He just cared about making cocktails with fresh ingredients again, which you, for some reason, consider regressive. I mean, Sasha Petrosky literally died because he just wanted. He wanted people to enjoy good cocktails again. And I don't think you could, I mean, conservative is always, is obviously a, a very strategically placed word in this article. And that's neither here nor there. But what he's trying to say is that it's regressive. It's regressive to go back to the era of fresh cocktails and good ingredients. Of freshness. Of not every cherry being dyed with a number five red dye. That's regressive. And then coming after, in my estimation, coming after maybe the best journalist, you know, certainly in cocktail history, but maybe, you know, amongst any industry, David Wondrich, who's dedicated his life to research. David Wondrich, if you don't know, wrote, wrote Punch and Imbibe books that are fantastic. And I'll leave a link in the description in the show notes. But literally goes, spends every ounce of energy he does whilst researching this stuff to go into, to, to look at every single bit of history that we have on every cocktail imaginable. And you sit here on your high horse, calling him whatever you called him, 
Yeah, I don't, I don't even care. It's, it's, it's not a word that people know. Anyway, he says, we can fat wash and cryovac and retovap a drink to the point of almost has no link to any classic. Yet people still want to have a link to a classic. This is so idiotic at this point. It's like, uh, it's almost like not even worth addressing. Because it seems like he's, this writer is obviously just trying to get a rise out of people. In the first and the second cocktail revolutions, we did not have the same technology, ice, ingredients, ideas that we do now. I think that's what he's trying to say. But you also have to understand, as I said before, that to have cocktails that are simple and good, that hold up, they make it universally applicable amongst many bars. Not everybody's going to get a, a, a cryovac. This is so ridiculous. And I do understand, I want to point out that I, I understand that appeal to tradition doesn't actually mean quality. But in the cocktail world, nostalgia doesn't mean nothing. The hazy history of cocktails is fun. It's fun to talk about. And none of it's even real. You know? Of course, there's some, there's facts and evidence, and that's what David Wondrich actually does so well. But when everybody was drunk, it's all just conversation and lore. So I'll give you, like, just to be fair, like, I, I do, as I say, I understand that appeal to tradition, basically, which is basically saying that something, because it's older, it's better. I understand that that's a logical fallacy. And that, that doesn't always mean quality. But there is a distinction between people liking something because it, it, it's, it's a good cocktail that holds up and people telling you that something is good. And you also have to understand that, you know, just by mere fact that something has been around longer means it's probably exposed to more people. It's been exposed to more people. So more people, of course, are going to order, order old, fas old fashions and... Uh, Manhattans, then a Queens Park Swizzle, which is also technically a classic, but it's just, it's easier, it's simpler, and it's been around longer. That's kind of just what it comes down to. But to be fair, to give you an example on the other side, you know, contracting opinion, I, I, I understand again that people telling you that something good is good, it doesn't mean it's good. For example, I was with a gal in New York City few years ago and I was drinking scotch and um, she said, Oh, I hate scotch. It tastes like band-aids. And honestly, that was the first time I'd ever thought about it. I was like, band-aids scotch to you tastes like band-aids. And then the bar that we're at, uh, that my buddy worked at Dominic, he was at analog. He was featured on the alchemists. He said, yeah, that's, a, that's actually a good thing. It's supposed to taste like Band-Aids. And I'm like, what? First of all, how do you know what Band-Aids taste like? Second of all, why would that be considered a marker for quality? Doesn't make any sense. Well, and he said, he just goes like, well, you know, I was talking to an actual scotch expert. 
And they said, you know, when you get a little Band-Aid taste, that's how you know it's a good scotch. And I just remember sitting there thinking, like, that, is, that is so ridiculous on so many levels and so not well thought out. And I do think that, like, I liked the headline of this article more than I liked the article. It could have been way better written and actually made some good points because, as I say, we have hit periods of stagnation. And there is examples like this where people tend to just believe things because they're a quote-unquote whatever scotch expert. I went into that last episode with the cocktail competitions. It's like these, quote, global spirits experts from big portfolios. That's not a thing. So I'm trying to be fair here. And so it's just like, and I'm like, so first of all, that does sound like something a scotch portfolio manager, representative, whatever it is, would say. And as I dug more into it, I found that because bourbon had such a big boom in the early 2000s, scotch started dyeing their whiskey with caramel color to compete with the bourbon market because bourbon was aged in a charred new oak barrel, which made it much more brown. So people liked the darkness of it. So they put more in more, they put they added caramel color to make it browner. And that is actually what led to that Band-Aid taste. So it's a convenient thing, thing, blah, 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 thing for them to say. And I would say the same thing if I was a Scotch representative. But bourbon, the bourbon industry in America does not l- allow you to add any caramel color. Unfortunately, Scotch, Irish, and other whiskeys typically are. It's because it's aged in a charred new oak barrel, um, which gives it the best oaky taste. And the color is all natural. So at least you know that when you're drinking bourbon. And I'll actually get into this as we go into Añejo tequila later because it's actually relevant. But I just want to point out that that's an example of somebody telling you something. It's like, because I said so. That's an example of circular reasoning. Why is Scotch Band-Aids good? Because I said so. That's not the same as the market deciding that they like old fashions, Manhattans, martinis, margaritas, because they're simple and they're good. Okay. It's a different thing. It's not only tradition. Although many people, myself included, actually like the appeal to tradition in some classic cocktails, which isn't the same thing as saying that I wish that I lived in the 1800s, just to be clear. But let me let you in on a little secret. I am not the rep I'm not a good representation of the average person that sits down and orders a Manhattan at a bar. And I'll use Manhattan as an example because that's the, the who this writer is is um that's the cocktail that this writer that seems to be picking on. The real reason that most people order a Manhattan in a bar is because it's very easy. It's pretty much idiot. And it's very hard to fuck up. And most people are not resistant to ordering new kinds of cocktails because uh, they hate change or they ain't progressive. They're trying to, they're trying to uh, 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 drink the old cocktails of the, of the day. It's because they're easy, simple, and they, it's like the one thing they think that you won't mess up. 
I am open to trying new cocktails all the time. I think there's a reason even Cocktail Codex points out why these cocktails and these formulas have stuck around so long. So the reality is, if the if the establishment if they doesn't they don't have good ice using good technique, then it's almost no point in trying something new. Why would somebody want to try something new? Because everything's going to be over diluted and not good. It's not going to be made well. It's not going to be shaken well. It's not going to be stirred well. So therefore, it wouldn't do justice to the actual flavors in the cocktail. And guest, the average person that orders Manhattan doesn't know the history of any cocktail, nor do they care. So I understand your frustration. I've had frustrations that are similar because people tend to just order things because they've been ordered for a long time. It's like, you know, I used to work in the finance district of Manhattan, and I can tell you a lot of those young bucks, they don't know why they drink old fashions. I can tell you that. They don't know about the history, nor do they care. They certainly ain't reading punch articles. And I actually like punch. So I'm not. I'm just trying to point out the reality here. Um, the, uh, and of course, like, there's not a single proposed solution in this article about what we should do about it, about how to create new cocktails and new innovation. And I don't want to make it seem like I'm shitting on cocktail bars. I was talking about the average bar. Many cocktail bars are inventing new cocktails every day. We talked in the last episode about why the winners of cocktail competitions seldom pick up. There hasn't been many new cocktails because of the Cocktail Codex Death and Company thesis that there's only six cocktails because there's only six formulas. Now you can experiment. You can experiment with the sweetener, the spirit, the bubbles, the bitters, the acid. You can all change those things at your leisure. But that doesn't really change the actual formula of the cocktail. As I talked about in a previous episode, I was talking to the head bartender of the Nomad Hotel a few years ago, who said, you know, there's just there's not going to be much more innovation in this industry because we have most of the flavors in America. We have most of the ingredients now. It, it, it's like, what else can you really do? It's very seldom that you stumble across something truly unique. And if you think that you have the solution, which you don't, then maybe go start a cocktail bar or a spirits brand or go out and do something differently. Not sit here and whine. And it's easy for a writer to say we should be cryovacking more recipes. That's, uh, this maybe pissed me off the most because we've actually created cocktail recipes in the consultancy for high-level bars where we've sous vide turmeric and ginger into spirits. And I can tell you, it is very hard to maintain that quality and to make sure that everybody's executing at a high level. It's incredibly hard. And an idea that even, that, I mean, let a, a, even cocktail bars, but let alone bars in general, are going to just start sous vide and cryo their, you know, ingredients into spirits, which is just kind of a fancy way to infuse shit. And I know about this, so, you know, there is, there is a reason why you might actually want to do that, but the average person doesn't even know what that is. Probably the average person reading Punch doesn't even know what that is. 
This article was shared to me by one of the wine people anyway. It's easy for them to whine about the lack of innovation in cocktails. How about the lack of innovation in wine? You guys are still adding egg whites and sulfites to everything. At least we went back to fresh ingredients to a certain extent. But I just think the the hypocrisy of being a cocktail writer, which this person isn't, Scott Hawker, to sit on their high horse and be like, yeah, because they didn't actually propose any other solutions besides just saying, yeah, we can cryovac things now. So I think every cocktail bar should just start cryovacing all their recipes. That way, we don't actually serve any classics or twists on classics because those are all problematic. You know, it's like, it's just so obvious that this person, Scott Hawker, has never, ever been behind the bar. And made an actual cocktail. And actually, it's very obvious because if they had, they would understand never talk about politics or religion behind the bar. And I can't actually even read the rest of this article because I believe in never talking about politics or religion behind the bar. And I've said many times that I also believe that that applies to the myself, certainly. And especially these big... um, Magazines like Punch. This, this, I like Punch a lot. I've looked to them over the years. This, to me, is just a, a disgusting display of just Punch allowing this garbage to seep into their institution. And this doesn't happen with most of their articles, so I don't want to take this out of context. And again, I'll say again, I think you should go and read the full article. And I'll post it in the link. But I can't actually read the rest of the article because I am going to stay true to that um, adage, that old adage. Because this industry is about bringing people together, not dividing people. And if you go look at his bio, it becomes very obvious that this guy's never been behind the bar. He, he, he's like probably never even made a cocktail. It says, Scott Hawker is a writer, editor, recipe developer, and cookbook author. Well, great. Congratulations, that's what we need. We need more cookbook authors in the spirits world. I'm kind of sick of this crossover. And Conan, an editorial consultant. He has worked in magazines, kitchens, newsletters, restaurants, and a bunch of other environments he can't remember right now. (laughs) That's a direct quote. He has also been an editor-in-chief in in both liquor.com and tasting. Well, I don't know what tasting table is, but I know that when it comes to researching cocktails, and I know because we've done it many times on the channel, liquor.com is one of the least credible places that you can go. They get almost everything wrong about cocktail history, which is maybe why this person thinks that they need to to, to write, about, has the audacity to write about cocktail history, because obviously they don't know. <laughs> Restaurants and a bunch of environments he can't remember right now. That's a direct quote from the website. Can you imagine? He's been a content and editorial consultant, but certainly never worked behind the bar. Just despicable. I'm not saying that every writer needs to go but work behind the bar, but you got to know more than that. That is just... It's disgusting. It's a disgusting display of classics of cocktail history and where we come from. Sick of it. 
And really quickly, uh, we're going to switch to a lighter note of uh, articles, thank God. Before we do, this video is sponsored by Alchemix Agency. Going forward is going to be more and more important to do digital advertising for your bar or restaurant. More people are trusting in the powers of social media uh, to run their bars or restaurant than ever. And we have argued before that this is what is going to set you apart as a bar or restaurant. So if you go to alchemics.co and click on agency, I have a 30-minute presentation that's up free to view uh, from yours truly, which is how to launch a digital advertising campaign on a minimum budget for any bar or restaurant. You can go and get that info for free. And then right below, you can enter your info and establishment to get a free business audit. And that is where I will be um, personally giving you some info, some tips about how you can uh, increase your digital media presence, your website, things of that nature to optimize your social media as a bar or a restaurant. All right, moving on to a lighter note, thank God. The article called Anejo, Extra Anejo, Behind Tequila's Big Luxury Play. This is another punch article. Let's see. I just want to make sure that I give credit to the author because I think this is brilliantly written. This is by Lauren Sloss. In 2006, tequila gained a new category, Extra Anejo, for tequilas aged in wood for three years or more. For a spirit long praised for its transparency, the rapid growth of uh, extra barrel-aged tequilas has some questioning the value and motives of this new, often high-priced category. Lauren Sauce gets behind the trend. So Añejo tequila needs to be aged for one year minimum. And many people have argued that that is not necessary. And that's something that I'm very interested in. But extra Anejo must be aged for three years. Wait. Yeah. Three plus years. You might say it's weird to start with Anejo, but uh, we've done Blanco and Reposado on the channel before, so this is just kind of where we're at. We're about to film Anejo. You can go back and watch the videos if you're interested in Blanco and Reposado. She says, everyone has a tequila story. Perhaps yours involves illegal behavior, nudity, or worse. But all of our tequila stories have one thing in common, the aftermath. You curled up in the fetal position, unable to handle the, more the mere suggestion of it for days, weeks, and years to come. This is an example of great writing because it's very relatable. I think everybody has that story. <laughs> But tequila has done a great deal of growing up for the last couple years, or for the last couple decades, shedding its party persona for a more defined air, one that evokes craft, care, centuries of tradition, and in some cases, luxury. And I would agree with that because I don't, I'm old enough to remember when tequila wasn't actually in America considered a sipping spirit. You would take shots of it. And I don't think this is just something that's for young people. I think plenty of people that are old, they can't even, old or middle-aged or whatever, they don't, they, they don't understand, they can't appreciate a good sipping tequila. 
But I like that she points out that craft care tradition, these are not bad things. As the last article would make it seem like these are, these are horrifying things. Craft care and tradition, horrible, despicable. Great tequilas and mezcals are expensive um, because they're like locally made, they're craft. You know, sometimes people say, like, if you spend extra on the mezcal, sometimes you're supporting an entire village. So I don't think that that premium category is, it's not a bad thing at all. Um, he said, much of this is due to the rapid growth of tequila consumption in the U.S., the largest market of gave spirits in the world. Pair this with the current tastes for age-rare premium products, and suddenly distillers have a great deal of monetary motivation to create products that look and taste different as well as products, they can get away with a significantly higher price tag. I will say that price, higher price tag doesn't necessarily mean better, of course, I mean, especially in the premium tequila category, as we'll get into. But, um, you know, if you research your tequilas and mezcals well, you can support local villages, sometimes by spending a little more. And I think that's important because they don't have mass market distribution, so they can't actually get their price down as much as some mass, uh, tequilas belonging to some massive portfolios. She says, this move is embodied in the rise of extra Anejo tequilas, tequilas that have been aged for at least three years in oak barrels. The classification was instituted in 2006, and over the past couple of years, a number of brands have come out with premium limited versions that have been aged for three, five, even 10 plus years, including Patron's Extra Nejo, Seven Años, Kilo Tapatillo's Excelencia, Kilo Ocho's San Agustin, Don Julio's Real and Dolce Vida's Extra Nejo, to name just a few prices. Price tags range uh, from $45 all the way up to $2,700 in the case of 1800's Collection. Now, I'll be the first to tell you that I think that a lot of these premium categories are probably bullshit. Um, you know, there, it's important to understand that there's a sort of equilibrium when it comes to aging. In other words, depending on the spirit that you're aging, some of them are going to max out the actual oak extraction or whatever barrel, type of barrel you're aging in. So it hits a point of stagnation, especially depending on the weather. Now, Mexico's hot, so that probably doesn't happen as quickly. But in the bourbon industry, for example, in America, when it gets cold, uh, bourbon doesn't age. That's why you have places like the Buffalo's Trace Distillery that were the first to introduce uh, uh, like heated aging facilities so the product wouldn't just sit there and stagnate. So, but either way, it hits a sort of equilibrium where the tequila does not, in this case, tequila does not actually change in flavor after a certain point. And as we're about to get into, some people argue that tequila may not even need to be aged. In the face of the massive new growth in this category of tequila products, the nagging question presents itself, does this kind of aging make sense for tequila, whose hallmark quality is the pure expression of fermented blue agave? Question mark. And how much of it is motivated by the desire to appeal to whiskey upset to the to the whiskey obsessed American market? 
So, uh, you know, I, I think this is, this is actually really interesting. I would not, um, be surprised if there, if this is just, yeah, if it's, if the aging, the premium category, which I mean, I'd be willing to say that it is just purely a cash grab. Because the people that drink 1942 and all these other ridiculously high-priced tequilas, they don't understand what they're drinking or why they're drinking it. It's purely a status symbol. So as always, I consulted with my guy Dan from Tequilas Philly, who I mentioned in one of the last episodes, on aging. Because I was in Tequilas Philly, and if you ever go, if you're ever in the Philly area, I highly encourage you to go to a place called Tequilas Philly. It's phenomenal. Um, they have tons and tons, I don't know how many mezcals, tequilas, and they're very knowledgeable. And, but the head bartender, Dan has always given me, answered my questions about tequila and what have you. Um, so I asked him because one day I was in there and I, he was like, you know, I don't know that what he said was, I don't think that I'm paraphrasing, but I don't know that aging really adds much to the tequila category. I don't want to put words in his mouth because I don't, I don't think that he really cares one way or another. But so I hit him up, sent him a DM on Instagram and asked for his thoughts. And he said, so I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing. I've tried some beautifully aged spirits. However, the idea behind aging was to compete with and treat it as aged spirits such as brandy and whiskey, etc. The difference between agave spirits and those spirits are the raw material. In the case of blue agave, blue agave, terrier, plays such a vital role in the flavor, the soil, the maturity of the, the plant, the skill of the humidor, and producers are just a few things that contribute to the plant. These are the things I want to taste in the product, more so than the barrel. I talked to a good friend of an expert I talked to a good friend and an expert in agave spirits, and currently there are 64 different factors that contribute to the final product of an agave spirit. I thought this was really interesting and, uh, you know, I'll touch on this briefly while we're here, but me and him had a, 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 a small conversation about why some of these big celebrity, celebrity brands and massive portfolios are actually horrible for, uh, the environmental, uh, production of tequila because the blue agave plant can't reach full maturity because they, they're, they're so massive that they, in essence, kill them and turn them into um, tequila too early, which is not great for crop rotation and things of that nature. And I believe that the, the, the average maturity is something like seven years for a blue agave plant. So that's a, that's a nuanced perspective that I think may be important. But he did say, I hear so many good arguments. Some people put up it's devaluing Mex Mexican tradition to try to appease the idea that European spirits are better, while others put up the argument that aging is an art in itself. So I like that. So I, I, the reality is, I think it's for you to decide. And I do think that the consumer should do, you know, should do their best to be educated about what they put in their bodies, especially what they're drinking. So, you know, I, I personally just, I thought this was interesting because I was trying to figure out why do, why have I always liked, um, Blanco, 
tequila better than anything else. And I think this is why. Because I made the argument with gin a number of years ago that I don't see the reason why it would be aged. It adds nothing to the flavor profile. I don't think it makes it better in any way. And I think that my eyes weren't exactly open to that argument when it comes to tequila because tequila that's aged has just been around a little bit longer. Barrel aging gin is just sort of a new phenomenon. I'm going to go for a little pure tequila for them. Whew. So she says in the article, true agave aficionados hold firm that Blanco is the truest way to drink tequila. From a cultural standpoint, in terms of taste, I think that most agave purists feel that barrel aging in general is an American and European taste pushing themselves into Mexican traditions. But this push does not mean that extra anejos can't be good or even great. So the point is it's nuance. But I wouldn't be surprised, you know, because so in, the, in America, as I say, Bourbon has to be aged in charred new oak barrels, which means we have to actually make our, our barrels. Well, I don't know if we make them all here, but they have to be new. We have to use new oak barrels. So we'll sell our X barrels to the, I mean, really the rest of the world. Ireland to age their Irish whiskey in. Scotland to age their scotch in. Spain to age their sherry in. And definitely Mexico to age their tequila in. So almost all tequila that's aged is aged in ex-bourbon barrels. So especially when you consider that, I don't know that that residual bourbon in an oak barrel is going to especially add anything unique or great to uh, tequila also. So... She's inter interviewing a guy, uh, a Himador, and he says tequila is a very delicate product. It's quite vulnerable to being in a barrel. Essis approaches this by aging tequila Ocho San Agustin tequila in American whiskey barrels. White oak, of course, that have been fatigued. Barrels that are the most used up and ultimately neutral they can find. So, yeah, like I say... Uh, there's there's going to be some residual flavor in that, and that could actually be inside the barrel, and that could actually be taking away from the quality uh, of the actual tequila. Scotch is, like I said, also, you know, cherries, Irish, everything. Because bourbon is the only industry that has a law against aging in a charred new oak barrel. So... Why wouldn't we export our barrels and sell them? But the point is, I'm, I'm getting at is I wouldn't be surprised if there's a little bit of push and shove here. Like, hey, maybe you should buy some of our barrels to age. Although it just it's certainly going to be cheaper typically than um, uh, just making your own barrels. So it's just hard to say. But she says, because Extranejo is a relatively new category, the spirit of experimentation is strong. But there's concern that the trend may result in tequilas that could become indistingu indistinguishable from any other white spirit that's aged for a long period of time in wood. And for the purists, barrel aging in general will always sort of miss the point. I think what they're trying to say, what she's trying to say is, 
Aging in this case actually takes away from the flavor as opposed to whiskey, which is very, I mean, aging is such a important part of the whiskey process for so, it has been for so long. There you go, tradition. That, uh, but, you know, it's important, but with tequila, it's not necessarily the case. I mean, you have to evaluate this on a spirit by spirit basis. Is something actually better because it's aged? And I think that's an important question to have because we, we tend to just, it seems that aging has become just a vanity metric, you might call it, to slap on a bottle where you can sell it for a higher price. But as I say, there's an equilibrium. So I'm not entirely convinced that aging for 25 years makes a whiskey better than a whiskey aged for 12, 15 years. But that's a conversation for another time. I'm always going to piss off somebody. You know, if you have a nuanced perspective. The guy she's interviewing says, Blanco is aged since it's the aging of the agave plant that really matters. It says, Hugel. Maturity of the plant and of its uh, growth comes through in the flavor of the tequila. That taste is important. So I guess what he's trying to say is that you know, agave plants, blue agave plants should, you know, really mature for seven years before, um, before they, they, they reach maturity to get a, the, to the best tequila. That's in essence, you know, in short, one of the reasons why the celebrity brands and all this stuff may not be great, but, uh, you know, it's not clear to me that aging, uh, tequila in a barrel is actually that important, you know? So what I want is for you guys to let me know. What do you think? Should tequila be aged? Do you like aged tequila more than a Blanco tequila? Which tequilas do you like? Any thoughts on tequila? Comment below. Um, And the best thing you can do if you want to help us out is like, share, and comment. Um, And also, I will be reading questions live. From the YouTube comments in the show notes and uh, on Twitter. So tweet at me at Tommy Alchemy. Very curious to know what you guys think and uh, genuinely here to help with any questions that you may have about bartending, booze, distilling, cocktail lore, increasing your profit margins as a bar, working your way up as a bartender, all the things of that nature. And as always, Cheers.